0: D- 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 Dignity of man. Hundreds of thousands of lives are suddenly at great risk. Former National Security Advisor Susan Rice writes, quote, full-scale conflict is not a certainty, but the probability is higher than at any point in decades, end of quote. We've seen way too often throughout history that the actions of one madman can lead to monumental carnage, which at the time is seen as preventable and later seen as complete madness. Why did America's founders so emphasize the requirement that in a Republican form of government, only Congress may declare war? Why do we have a State Department? How essential a part of the notion of self-government is a built-in mechanism to specifically require diplomacy and other measures to avoid and control the often inhuman mechanics of action-reaction and shedding of buckets of blood known as war. In light of Trump throwing a stone into a giant hornet's nest of Iraq and Iran, is there any way available to stop the already intensely ramped-up madness? With us today to talk about what so frighteningly looks like irreversible escalation and inevitable loss of many, many lives is Bill Hartung, Thanks for being with us uh, on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, Bill. Yes, thanks for having me. Bill Hartung is the director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy and senior advisor to the center's Security Assistance Monitor. He's the author of Prophets of War, that's P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, co-editor with Miriam Pemberton of Lessons from Iraq, Avoiding the Next War. His previous books include And Weapons for All, a critique of U.S. arms sales policies from the Nixon through Clinton administrations. Well, of course, we're going to focus today on the assassination of Iran's Major General Qasim Soleimani, its effects and historical background, uh, as one whose life has been shaped perhaps more than anything by the clear, rather obvious lessons of Vietnam, of America's war in Vietnam, i've been amazed at how effectively those unambiguous lessons have indeed not been learned they seem to have been quite intentionally erased i note that you co-edited a book called lessons from iraq avoiding the next war what were those lessons and both why and how were those lessons erased
1: well i think one of the biggest lessons was wars of regime change just
0: will boomerang
1: on you and you may remember President Bush's mission accomplished. Um, excuse me. I, I, um, I seem to have something caught in my throat. I'm having a hard time projecting. I think I'm going to need a second.
0: Okay. Well, we're talking about uh, the obvious uh, provocation, the amazing, some would say cowardly uh, assassination, uh, not by a human, but by a drone of uh, a major figure in Iran while he was at the Iraq airport in Baghdad. And uh, it's, it's very scary, and we're trying to figure out uh, if, if, how it happened, what the significance is, and if major escalation can possibly be avoided. Our guest today is William Hartung, director of uh, the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. This is this is big stuff, and uh, this is a guy who who knows uh, whereof he speaks. He's been on keeping democracy alive a few times in the past when we need to talk about uh, foreign policy. And uh, there's uh, very few people better and more uh, educated and more familiar with the uh, uh, workings of uh, foreign policy in the United States. Billy, you there? Hi, I'm I'm back. Oh, good, 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 good. Well. You wrote, uh, co-wrote the book, Lessons from Iraq, Avoiding the Next War. What were those lessons, and both why and how were those lessons erased?
1: Well, as I was saying, um, part of it is you can't fight wars of regime change, um, because no matter how simple it may seem to the average militarist, there's always complications. So we saw that with uh, George W. Bush's Mission Accomplished, speech, where he basically said, you know, the war is over. We won. You know, we've got it under control. It's And then you saw the pushback from uh, former Saddam supporters, the beginnings of uh, counter, kind of a you know terrorist response to the U.S. presence in Iraq, if you can call it that, given that it was in their own country,
0: yeah, right.
1: um, and a protracted war that cost us well over a trillion dollars, thousands of lives of U.S. servicemen, hundreds of thousands of lives in the Iraq and Afghan wars. Yes. And, um, you know, incredible damage to our veterans, hundreds of thousands of them with traumatic brain injuries, with post-traumatic stress syndrome, and so forth. So one would have thought that that alone would be a reason to get out of these wars and not contemplate starting a new one. But um, for whatever reason, uh, not only our establishment, but certainly President Trump is one of our more erratic presidents, have either never learned or completely decided to ignore those lessons.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing how... I mean, one would have thought the lessons from Vietnam, which are basically the same lessons. You can't impose a government on a people that don't see it as a legitimate government. It just doesn't work but somehow that's got to be erased for the militarists. Now since the CIA engineered coup that I mean a lot of people don't know about this, but back in 1954 it overthrew Iran's legitimate government and placed the Shah in power who was not loved in his country. it is fair to say that the people of Iran have never cozied up to the United States. and since the revolution of 1979, The U.S. has seen Iran as an enemy. Now, fast forward to the current tensions. As candidate Bernie Sanders recently pointed out, countries from all over the world came together to negotiate the uh, nuclear agreement, which put a lid on Iran's nuclear program. The wise course would have been to stick with that nuclear agreement, enforce its provisions, and use that diplomatic channel with Iran to address a wide range of concerns, including their support of terrorism. Now, how does the Trump administration's abandonment of that nuclear deal from 2015 play into where we are today? And and uh, before we answer that, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice says Iran was, quote, in full adherence to its terms, end of quote. Now it seems nuclear weapons may soon be in the hands of unstable and hostile regimes such as Iran, What was the reason given for Trump's reversal of the historic Obama and Kerry nuclear deal?
1: Well, part of it was pure Trump. You know, any deal made by Obama was a bad deal. Right. Um, Part of it was he thought it could bully Iran into what he called a better deal, which would mean not just curb their nuclear program, but their support for various groups throughout the Middle East, like Hezbollah and so forth. And um, that just wasn't going to happen. And so then he ratcheted it up with economic sanctions, economic warfare, thinking, you know, that would get Iran to buckle. And that didn't happen. And then finally, where where we are today with the military strikes and the risk of a greater war.
0: Yeah, I'm not the greatest historian in the world, but I'm aware of uh, Hitler's uh, terror bombing, relentless bombing of London. Did they give up? Did they buckle? No, they didn't. They fought harder. And the same is true with northern Vietnam when the U.S. was bombing them. Did they buckle? No, they fought harder. And Since 2017, when uh, President Trump broke off the nuclear deal, there's been maximum pressure on Iran's economy. What was the goal of that? Was there a goal at all? What have been the actual effects? Is there reason to think it had any positive effects on slowing Iran's activities in Yemen, Syria, or Lebanon? No, no.
1: I think the idea was, You know, they they claimed it was because they were going to force Iran to stop its various activities in the region. They were going to get a better deal than the nuclear deal. And that was a non-starter, and it it certainly didn't happen. Uh, So what we saw was Iran continued to do what it's done in the region before, and as the pressure mounted and it was being felt by the average Iranian, they felt the need to respond. And so uh, they interfered with oil tankers in the Gulf. It's believed that they were the ones who attacked the Saudi oil facility.
0: Right. Back in September, yeah.
1: None of this was necessary. Uh, You know, as as you mentioned, Susan Rice pointed out, they were adhering to the deal, and it could have been a bridge to negotiating those other issues. But instead, under Trump's, you know, my way or the highway, let's bully them into this approach, uh, we've ended up where we are today were you know dangerously close to a war.
0: Yeah, and you use the word bully. It, it seems like that is the operant word for so many of Trump's so-called policies. I don't know if he'd even call it a policy, his actions. Uh, in, in the weeks before the assassination, uh, the streets of Baghdad were filled with people in a popular uprising. What was that about? And how popular has Iraqi Prime Minister uh, Mahdi been of late? Is his remaining in power not of great value to the U.S.? What about those protests?
1: Well, they were against the regime, uh, his regime. Uh, It was corrupt. It wasn't meeting the needs of the people. Uh, It was repressive. And so you had this flowering of democratic protests, part of which, by the way, was directed at Iran because of their influence over
0: oh my goodness now I messed up oh hold on ah jeez this is too funny here ah uh, no, I messed up I'll put you back on oh
1: no problem
0: Ah, this is an interesting day. All right, you there? I'm here. Uh, all right, what, what were you saying? Please go on.
1: Oh, so I was saying, you know, basically what Trump accomplished was taking a democratic movement that was focused on the, the Iraqi regime and its ties with Iran, turning that situation into almost universal opposition and anger towards the United States both in Iran and in Iraq, Uh, and and therefore probably consolidating Iran's position in Iraq and also uh, making it harder for any kind of democratic sentiments to reemerge in Iran. So Trump managed with some airstrikes and this assassination to completely flip the script in what could have been some positive developments in, in Iraq in particular.
0: Hmm. So these protests against uh the uh American approved government uh I wonder what what they may have played into it uh, into uh uh Trump's decision to uh to assassinate the leader of Iran it seems just incredibly counterproductive I mean were there opportunities opening up for change that might be beneficial to the United States by these popular uprisings. And, you know, I, I know there's been, Iraq is not Iran. They're two very different, uh, uh countries. They do share, uh, so, some religion for sure. And Iran has had a lot of influence there, but Iraq, you know, was formed out of three separate nations after the first world war, the Kurds, the uh, Sunnis and the Shias. And Iran, you know, is is very, very popular with the Shia. But what about how, how does the, the, the economic sanctions was it having any positive effect at all? Or was it simply weakening the government we wanted to stay in power?
1: Well, I think it did end up undermining the Iraqi regime. And it, as I said, it provoked these responses from Iran, far from backing down uh they felt the need both for domestic internal purposes and, and just their own take on the world uh to push back so you know from my point of view Trump started this crisis and the question is can we force him to to rein it in
0: i wonder about that if we can force him to do anything but uh, taking to the streets often does make a difference, at least other countries realize that. We, have, we here in the United States have been led to believe that we are powerless, that it doesn't matter taking to the streets, but my goodness, it absolutely does. Now, this President, uh, or Prime Minister rather, Mahdi of Iran, uh, said he considers the strike an act of aggression against Iraq that would light the fuse of war, and the Iraqi legislature passed a non-binding resolution calling for the American military to leave. And in what ways has the energy on the streets changed, do you think, since the assassination? Is anger at Iran redirected now? Has it just forced uh, the two countries to be uh, closer alliances?
1: Well, certainly, the anger's been redirected towards the United States. Whether in the long term, that means... Iran will maintain its influence there, it's hard to know. Um, But we've got a long way uh, to get to, especially if a war intervenes, um, to to know how that's going to play
0: out. And And just in case some people forget, there was a brutal war between Iran and Iraq not that long ago in 1980. Where, you know each state, they fought really hard one against each other so you know traditionally they have not been super close allies they were killing each other and I wonder about uh, precedent uh, in, in April 2017 the United States launched at Trump's direction launched 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles from the Mediterranean Sea into Syria aimed at the Shayrat airbase controlled by the Syrian government That was apparently all there was to it, and it did not become an act of war. I'm curious why that didn't. It seems to have had no effect on Syrian policy in that civil war, which has gone on for a long time. Could it have been done for domestic American consumption, do you think, and that perhaps the Syrian government actually understood it and kind of winked at it? Because it's not clear how much, if any, damage was actually done by that. Somehow that was not seen as an act of war. Can you explain that?
1: Well, I think it was perceived as a one-off. I called it at the time (laughs) part of Trump's P.T. Barnum foreign policy. (laughs) Uh, You know, basically more show than kind of strategy. And because it didn't do a lot of damage, I think the Syrian government went about its business uh, and just shrugged it off. But it's quite a different thing to... um, Assassinate the second most powerful leader in a foreign country on the soil of, of a third country.
0: For those who may have just tuned in, Burt Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Bill Hartung, who is a director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy, and we're talking about the uh, ripple effects of the uh, of Trump's assassination of uh, Soleimani at the airport in Iraq. I wonder if anybody, Republicans here in the U.S. or anybody is saying that the assassination is not an act of war. I I just, I can't imagine how they could say that. Do you know if they are saying it's not?
1: Other than Pompeo and the administration, I don't know anywhere in the world where this is not viewed as an act of war. I mean, there may be some conservative elements, pro-Trump elements, but almost universally, the, the sense is that uh, this is a provocation in uh, an act of war.
0: And I, I can't, you know, they're not going to, I can't imagine them backing down. I mean, Britain didn't back down. Vietnam didn't back down. Uh, there are millions of people out on the streets. I mean, it was so bad that like 30-some people got trampled to death. That's a pretty clear indication of popular sentiment. People there are angry, and they have uh, connections all over the world—sleeper cells and things like that. And you know, for for I, I can't imagine how anybody could argue that this was good for national security. This increases Americans' safety around the world. I I just I can't see that. I mean, poking a hornet's nest so badly. Our European partners of course were not informed of the attack Tom Tugendhat I'm not sure if I pronounced that right who was chairman of the uh, United Kingdom's Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee said quote the purpose of having allies is that we can surprise our enemies and not each other how have our allies reacted do we know if Trump cares at all about our strategic alliances
1: he does not seem to um And and
0: how how have they reacted?
1: He didn't consult Congress, he didn't consult the Allies. Uh, Apparently he told some friends of his, like Lindsey Graham, that was about it.
0: And I wonder if he told, uh, or if Putin told him, I don't know. Uh, I I wonder how Putin sees all this. I mean, that's always speculation that he is uh, rather happy with uh, Donald Trump, but they support the Syrian regime. How might they play into this uh, this whole situation? I really have no idea what their policy is toward Iran and Iraq. Do you, do you have any sense?
1: Are you speaking of Russia?
0: Yeah, Putin.
1: Um, I think he's biding his time. I mean, they have sold weapons to Iran. They've had uh, nuclear energy deals with Iran. They've actually started selling weapons to Iraq, so it's possible they could benefit from all this. <laughs>
0: course well, obviously uh, you know the stocks of Lockheed and uh, various uh, uh, weapons manufacturers what a surprise took a nice jump when uh, right after the assassination of course the price of oil will probably go up Uh, now in terms of allies Trump suddenly abandoned the Kurds uh, who appear to have been our most important allies in the fight against ISIS. Remember ISIS. Anybody? What do you think is likely now with regard to the strength of the allegedly defeated ISIS? And and uh, what does the Kurdish nation do in light of this assassination? Uh, you know, in light of uh, their being abandoned uh, so suddenly and and being so vital to uh, the fight against ISIS. What happens now with regard to to ISIS and the Kurdish nation? Any thoughts on that, Bill?
1: Well, this is totally. Uh, going contrary to the notion of fighting ISIS, both the abandonment of the Syrian Kurds, and now the distraction in Iraq. I mean, you know, the parliament has asked U.S. troops to leave. They've apparently suspended or going to suspend anti-ISIS operations. The Iranian-backed militias, for all the issues U.S. has had with them, have also been fighting ISIS in Iraq. So it's really a complete it's almost the most counterproductive policy you could imagine if you're concerned about fighting ISIS.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's rather amazing. I mean, they were the big, bad enemy for a long time. Seems like they deserve to be seen as the big, bad enemy for a long time. Rather, not nice people. And suddenly, there is no... Effort against ISIS and and they uh, they must be uh, thrilled at what happened here. I just I, it's it's astounding. I I have a hard time, as they say, getting my head around it. Uh, what about the world economy? Is it likely that the Saudi and other uh, uh, oil nations' petroleum infrastructure will face a heightened risk of attacks uh, and? There's the uh, Straits of Hormuz, uh, which, are, you, you know, shipping is, is very vulnerable there. What, what do you think about the effects of this, you know, sudden assassination on uh, the world economy?
1: Well, it remains to be seen, but, you know, the Saudis, the UAE are all nervous about this. This is not the outcome they want, despite their antipathy towards Iran. Anything's at play. Strait uh, Straits of Hormuz, possible... Uh, second attack on Saudi oil facilities and if any of that happens it'll have huge ramifications for the world economy
0: and as you say it seems like the Saudis have been you know big time troublemakers in the region for a long time and they're you know making horrible uh, war on the people of Yemen with our help they have tried to it seems to me picture that there's uh, uh Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran on the other. and they have you know they are you know really uh, uh, fiercely competitive in the region and now their competitors have been hit and they're not happy about it. What? it. could talk about a little bit more about this I mean why wouldn't they be pleased that this is happening? Uh,
1: I think because it's gone too far, they saw what happened with the attack on their oil facilities and they're afraid of more to come. Uh-huh. Uh, I think their idea was pressure Iran, corner Iran, but not full-scale war.
0: Hmm. Not full-scale war. Wow. It's hard to imagine Trump going and and his son, uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, crossing the Saudis at all. They've been so tight for so long and, uh, you know, said nothing in in the wake of the uh, uh, brutal killing of uh, the Washington Post uh, columnist uh, Khashoggi. In terms of the effects on national security, American national security, Iran has allies throughout the world. Might the threat of targets across the world... Might there be a threat of targets across the world being hit without warning now? How could we not now expect the response from Iran and its supporters to be multifaceted at unpredictable times and in multiple places? How could Trump not be aware that his action is inviting escalation of aggressive Iranian attacks? How how can I don't understand how he could explain that and say that makes Americans safer?
1: Uh, I don't think he can. And he's going to demonize Iran. He's going to posture as the tough guy. He's going to try to equate the with Osama bin Laden. Uh, But I'm not sure any of that's going to work.
0: Well, what about this Osama bin Laden? I mean, people have have said in defense of of the president's actions that, uh, hey, we took out Osama bin Laden, and that was okay. Why isn't this okay? What do you say to that?
1: Well, Bin Laden was behind a plot that killed 3,000 Americans on U.S. soil. Soleimani was directing militias that were fighting U.S. troops in a war zone. Yes. So, as Big as objectionable as that is, uh, they're two completely different situations.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it, the Americans that were, you know, attacked were in his country. They were not here in America. Um, and I, I am reminded, you know, there's this one obvious question about whether or not this might be aimed at diverting attention from impeachment. A- as Bill Clinton was being impeached, he launched an airstrike into Yugoslavia and into Iraq, actually. I have a headline right in front of me from December 1998. This is the New York Times headline. Big, big letter saying impeachment vote in-house delayed as Clinton launches Iraq airstrike, citing military need to move swiftly. It seems hard to believe (laughs) that a president could risk sparking a major war to get attention off his political and legal troubles. It it, it seems really hard to believe. Your thoughts on that, Bill? Uh,
1: I think it's possible that that was part of his calculation. Uh, he's tried to delegitimize the impeachment inquiry. He said the Democrats are the do-nothing Democrats who don't care about our security or our prosperity because they're just pursuing this witch hunt. So it's not a big stretch to think that this might have been part of Trump's thinking.
0: Boy, you talk about short-term thinking. My goodness and i wonder how do do you have any sense of how the uh, us military is reacting oftentimes from what i've seen thus far they are very worried about this guy in the white house that, that he doesn't seem to understand uh, <laughs> military consequences do, have you seen i haven't really seen a reaction from the uh, american military they're probably loath to criticize the commander in chief but uh, w- what's your sense of that
1: I think there's internal concern, but they're not going to state it right. publicly as long as they're still <clears throat> in the service yeah uh but there's no question that this guy does not play by the traditional rules uh be it the employment of force or almost on any other front,
0: right. I wonder if he consults with the uh military leaders i mean these guys. You know they are experts. The people at the Pentagon know about such things, and you know to to do it without their participation, their consultation is is almost unimaginable. Uh, and Trump claims that the assassination was not intended to start a war. That is it. You know that that Soleimani, as a, as we said, has killed many Americans who were in his country, and that. He sh- it should have been done a long time ago he criticized Obama saying you know if we know about this guy why wasn't it done a long time ago uh, is it possible that this might prove to be true that uh, that it should have been done a long time ago and that uh, it it may not have actually been intended to start a war uh, I'm trying to figure I, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense but maybe there's some sense to it that's eluding me what do you think
1: uh, I think Trump didn't think through the consequences. Nah. It wasn't just Obama. Bush also decided not to do this.
0: Oh, true. And it was
1: because of the fear of what's happening now, of escalation, a possible war at a time when we've already seen the consequences of our other East wars and how negative they've been and, and what a strain they've put on our military.
0: Yeah, they have. And, uh, you know, there was talk about fighting a, a multi-front war and how the, uh, you know, it, it's just beyond reasonable to do that, despite how much money you throw at at the Pentagon. In your letter, Bill uh, Hartung, to the New York Times, you point out that, quote, the Trump administration's targeted assassination of Iran's top military leader, Major General Qasem Soleimani, was carried out without congressional authorization. Now, any student of history knows that our founders, in their clear and overriding uh, intention for the new nation not to be a monarchy or dictatorship, were quite purposeful in their requirement that war is so serious, so blatantly dreadful, it could only be made, it should only be made by Congress, the many people who are elected to directly serve the citizens who put them in Washington and not any other interests. But if my memory is correct... This requirement that, that our founders created, that only Congress has the power to declare war, has been skirted ever since the Second World War. wasn't used for Korea, obviously Vietnam, uh, Panama, so many different things. There's a difference between the ideal and the real. W- requiring congressional approval to make war, has that become just passe? W- w- what's the reality there?
1: There have been efforts in the last year or so to use the War Powers Resolution to stop U.S. support for the war in Yemen and pass both houses uh, vetoed by Trump. And there's going to be an effort on Iran a similar sort, uh, perhaps as early as uh, this week. So maybe Congress is waking up to that. But if so, it would be against the pattern that you described historically.
0: It it just hasn't been used in, in in so long. They found so many ways to get around it. I mean, there's the uh, AUMF, the Authorized Use of Military Force, that came in after nine eleven. Was that not intended to be an open ended okay to the president to do anything he or she wanted militarily against any target defined as a terrorist? Does that not really abrogate the uh, uh, requirement that uh, you know it's not a war? wink wink uh, it's it's just an attack on, on terrorists uh, does that really open the door and and you know was was uh, Trump's attack consistent with the authorized use of military force
1: no uh, because as much of a blank check as that was it was supposed to be against Al-Qaeda and associated forces uh, and Iran is not associated with Al-Qaeda
0: Hmm. A lot of people don't, aren't aware of that. It's very confusing all the different uh, former uh, tribes and nations within the old Ottoman Empire. It's uh, very confusing. Sunni, Shia, uh, all that stuff. But how is it that, was it specifically in the AUMF against Al-Qaeda? Was that language in there or was it left purposely open-ended do you think?
1: Well, I think what's happened is they've stretched beyond the limit this notion of associated forces.
0: Associated forces uh, right. and
1: so uh, they've attacked groups that didn't even exist at the time of the September eleventh attacks. And Secretary Pompeo is trying now retroactively to link Iran to nine one, for which there's no evidence. And if anybody's linked to nine one one it's the Saudi regime, yes. which Trump has cozied up to.
0: Yes facts. Such inconvenient things. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today, Bill Hartung, director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. We're talking about the uh, the background, the context of the uh, Trump assassination of uh, uh, Qasim Soleimani uh, and what happens from here, what might be possible. It's, it's a pretty frightening time. And The War Powers Act, if I remember correctly, and I may not, uh, Congress reasserted uh, this responsibility back in 1970 when the War Powers Act was uh, uh, installed uh, to end Nixon's similarly impulsive escalation of the war in Vietnam into neighboring Cambodia. It worked. It stopped uh the uh the the war in Cambodia, I believe what about that act the the War Powers Act that was passed to stop the war uh is it applicable today and why not if it's not
1: it is applicable um, it would require return of forces after thirty days, which is longer than I would like to see but where you know, the other thing that stopped Vietnam was of course Congress cut up money uh-huh. uh, and I think there could be a resolution of that sort They no government
0: funds for a war with uh, Iran I wonder that would put the Republicans in an interesting spot they'd probably do what they always do yes sir whatever you say sir when he says jump they just say how high but uh, I know there is uh, uh, action going on in Congress right now and we'll get to that before the end of the discussion I'm not sure if the following is accurate. And you know this social media, all kinds of things get out there. I'm not sure if this is true. I want to know what you've heard about this. That according to uh, Prime Minister Mahdi, Iraqi Prime Minister Mahdi, he had planned to meet Soleimani on the morning that the journalist was killed to discuss a diplomatic peacekeeping mission that Iraq was brokering between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Mahdi said according to this, that Trump personally thanked him for the efforts, even as he was planning the hit on Soleimani. Soleimani, thus creating the impression that the Iranian general was safe to travel to Baghdad. He was to pick up a letter from Saudi prince, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to the Iranian leadership. If this is true, one is reminded of what the Saudis did to Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. He was told Khashoggi was told he had to go to the Saudi embassy to get paperwork to marry his fiancee. Could anything be more innocent than that? Of course, he was uh, brutally murdered there. Now, given the close relationship between Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, and the Saudi prince, this story sounds plausible. What do you know about that?
1: I haven't been able to confirm it. I know there's been overtures from the Saudis to Iran because they don't want full-scale war. Uh, But this particular incident, I haven't seen enough documentation to know for sure. Uh, but it's
0: certainly uh, at least plausible. Yeah, it does seem quite plausible indeed to to set him up to think he's safe, like the Khashoggi thing. Uh, that uh, you know, to to make him th- think that this is entirely peaceful and this going to be a good thing to to lure him out into the open, and then to uh, to shoot him to kill him. It's possible. It'll be interesting to see how this uh, story goes from here on out. Uh, who knows? if it's true it does sound plausible for sure given the saudis and jared kushner and uh, donald trump what about the democrats response as uh uh, will rogers famously said uh, i'm not a member of any organized party i'm a democrat so they have uh, they're all over the place democrats always are let's, let's face it and a piece in the new republic argues quote, Democrats simply believe assassinating Soleimani and similar limited surgical or tactical strikes is potentially worth doing under the right circumstances, at least having devised a plan of attack like the Obama administration's kill list of terrorist suspects to be eliminated by drone strike, for instance. What can be read between the lines of some of the Democratic statements on Soleimani uh, shows an abiding respect for an American president's prerogative to take unilateral offensive action in the Middle East. They seem, as the article says, still scared categor- to categorically reject war. W- what are your thoughts about the divisions in the Democratic Party and, and sort of justifying, uh, because frankly, Obama used a lot of drone strikes as well. Uh, what about the, that part of the Democratic uh, Party uh, position?
1: Well, I think there are differences, but not as uh, extensive as they've been in some past cases. I mean, there were Democrats who simply said, let's line up behind the president. And now that we've, uh, you know, we're at war with Iraq uh, back in 2003 and beyond, Uh, most Democrats now are saying, uh, you know, I'd say that the most quote, understanding position of the President is to say, he hasn't explained himself. What's the strategy here? Uh, Until we hear more, uh, we don't accept that this was a a viable action, and and in any case he should have come to Congress, and he should come to Congress. So that's one set of arguments. Um, uh, The other one is just to say this was an assassination, this would be an illegal war, we shouldn't fund this uh, we should encourage the entire country to stand up against this, so there's certainly differences, but I think it's it 's not quite the same as we 've seen in some past wars in the sense that i haven 't heard any Democrats saying, "Oh yes, you know uh, this was a wise move, and, and we have to corner uh, Iran and A lot of Democrats have also said we should never have um, abrogated the Iran nuclear deal
0: so that 's true um
1: i don't i 'm maybe not quite as harsh as the writer of that article uh, on the Democratic position.
0: Well, again, we are, you know, Democrats are, are divided all over the place, and it just recently happened, and I wonder about, you know, the 2016 election was basically lost in the heartland of America, in the rural areas. I wonder, you know, again, this just recently happened, I wonder how oh, this is all playing there. I mean, it's a very simple thing to look tough. Yeah, we stood up, we've finally got the guy. It's, you know, America is standing strong. Of course, that's incredibly simplistic. Uh, but I I wonder do you have any I don't really have a sense of of how it's playing in the the heartland of America but I mean of course his base loves it but that's you know there's nothing he could do as he said he could shoot somebody on the street and get away with it but I wonder I mean this is you know it's political for sure and it seems like it was at least to get attention off of the impeachment thing by, uh, I mean, this has been done before. President Clinton did it in uh, uh, 1998, and it'll be curious to see how this plays out. Do you have any sense of that, Bill Hartung? Uh,
1: Well, I don't know that there's been polling
0: done
1: since the activity, Uh, but what I've been led to understand is there's not a lot of support for war with the wrong. Now, some people may accept this notion of Trump's that, you know, this was an evil man, this was a one-off, which, you know, it was, Uh quote-unquote, okay to do this. Uh, But I think those people would change their minds rapidly if the administration tried to escalate from here. So, um, you know, you may remember Trump ran by talking about the Iraq War being a fiasco, how we could have spent those trillions of dollars to... Uh, You know, rebuild America. He called Hillary Clinton Hillary the Hawk. He said our Middle East wars in general were a disaster. So he obviously hasn't carried out any of that. In fact, there's more troops in the Middle East than when he took office. But I think part of his base does believe in that. Yeah. That America shouldn't be in these endless wars. So um, he may find this tough going uh, if he tries to pursue a war.
0: Well, I'd be awfully surprised if Iran and Iraq and their various allies and and perhaps sleeper cells, of the United States, didn't uh, you know attack various people. I understand there's been an eighty million dollar price tag put on uh, the head of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, and there's going to—I I can't imagine there not being reprisals for this all over the world, Europe, anywhere, uh, and of course the U.S. You know, in typical fashion, as with any Western nation, basically, going to have to tit for tat. You know, if they hit us, well, we're going to have to hit them even harder. And it just escalates from there. Sounds a little bit like the First World War. Uh, and uh, wh- what about the mood of the public? You know, back, it seems like we's, we've been kept from learning, as we said early on, the lessons from Vietnam. But. <sighs> I wonder if if the public mood... I get the sense that maybe people are less inclined now to support aggressive military policy. I mean, at least Trump campaigned on that. He obviously didn't mean it, and he was right. Hillary was a hawk, no question about it. But he campaigned against it, and there's uh, Rand Paul, Republican, who's speaking out, uh, who's been interesting foreign policy, very uh, uh, traditionally conservative, in my opinion, uh, not like the Trump Republicans, but... uh, I I, I get the sense that that the nation now is... It's harder... To unite us uh, for a war and again after the First World War uh, it was really a challenge for Franklin Roosevelt to whip up the nation to fight the Nazis in a Second World War because we had this bad experience and we've had a lot of bad experiences I mean we're not winning in Afghanistan you know a lot of Americans have come back wounded and dead Uh, so I'm thinking that there may be less tolerance among the public for uh, a, a war like this with, with no clear goal. I don't know. Uh, of course, uh, there are a few people who have consistently spoken out, in general, against war. And right after the assassination, Bernie Sanders uh, spoke in Iowa, and, and I got a quote a little bit from him. He said, when I voted against the war in Iraq in 2002, I feared that it would result in greater destabilization in that country and in the entire region. At the time, I warned about the deadly so-called unintended consequences of a unilateral invasion. Today, 17 years later, that fear has unfortunately turned out to be a truth. The United States has lost some 4,500 brave men and women fighting in Iraq. Tens of thousands have been wounded. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis have been killed. Trillions of dollars have been spent on that war. Trillions. That's a thousand billion. and a billion, of course, is a thousand million. it's It's you know, who who can even think of that number? Now, Senator Sanders, and Congressman Ro Khanna from California have introduced a measure in Congress to stop Trump's new war. What do we know of that, and what do you think of it? What's it about? Is it uh, meaningless? Will it have uh, any legs to it? it, uh, Could it perhaps lead to cutting off funding for that? What do you think its chances are of succeeding?
1: Well, it can certainly succeed in the House. In the Senate, it's a question of whether you can get some of the same people who voted on the War Powers Resolution to stop support for the Saudis support this kind of thing. Uh, And also, it would have to be more senators. Uh, You know, six or seven supported the uh, Yemen-related War Powers Resolution. We would need probably a veto-proof group uh, in the Senate. So it'd have to be a lot of pressure on those senators. But given the immense cost of another war The fact that we've had all these wars in this century that have turned out uh, terribly, and that many people are aware of this, including even, you know, there's been recent polls that the uh, majority of veterans of those wars now question whether we should have fought them.
0: Yes. And I, I hope more veterans do speak out, because as you recall, you know, it was the veterans speaking out against the war in Vietnam that really changed public opinion. And I, I, I hope that they do that. And what about that? There was I mean, the U.S. has been very much supporting the Saudi war. In Yemen which has been just an incredible catastrophe and just refresh my memory what happened with that resolution calling for an end to US support for the Saudi uh, war I mean our bombs are being used and the people in Yemen know this as do people all over the Middle East what happened with that uh, resolution what was it about and 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 how did it end up
1: well there was a war powers resolution that passed the House and Senate only to be vetoed by President Trump And it would have stopped sort of direct support, uh, help with targeting, refueling, any kind of military coordination. Uh, And then there were separate measures to stop the arms sales, which also passed and were vetoed by Trump. So uh, Trump is really the obstacle at this point to ending U.S. involvement in that war and, and ultimately ending the war itself.
0: But it did pass the Senate, too. That's interesting. And I think uh, uh, my guess is there's less outcry, or there was less outcry about, you know, that measure, the Saudi, us supporting the Saudis in Yemen. I don't think there was as much visibility and, and real public awareness as there is now. So who knows what could happen? Do you think the country, as we've seen this before, might be effectively motivated to stand by the president in a time of war, as we have so often done in the past. Your thoughts on that, Bill?
1: Well, there's always that phenomenon, but I think given that Trump has so obviously, to me at least, pushed us to the brink of an unnecessary war, um, that effect may be less, because also we've lived through the wars of this century. So people have been through this before, and they've seen the results. So, so I think Trump may not get that benefit that some past presidents have had when they've gone to war. Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, how can you, uh, you know, switch horses in midstream? Whatever. I mean, we're, we're in a war. <sighs> well, wow, that that will be an interesting thing to see. And uh, this, as as I mentioned before, you know, street action when I'm often reminded of uh, A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the uh, Pullman-Porters Union back in the 1930s, a black man who uh, was uh, talking to President Franklin Roosevelt about ending discrimination based on skin color. And the president said something like this. I don't remember the exact words. I'm with you. I agree with you. You're right. Now go out there and make me do it. And what he meant by that was, Show strength because politicians need to see that the public is with them before they're going to act. You know, they, they tend to lack courage on things like that. But if they can see the public is there, uh, then they make it safe for the politicians to do it. I, I, I know there are some demonstrations being planned. There hasn't been a big one really since the, uh, right after the inauguration. Uh, I, I don't know if there were any organizations, and again, people have been convinced that we don't have any power, that we are powerless, but we're not, so it'll be interesting uh, to see. Uh, I don't know if you have any uh, uh, you know ear to the ground if anything like this is happening, if there are any organizations uh, trying to you know put people out in the streets here. Um, well, yeah. Uh,
1: there's groups like Code Pink, there's groups like Win Without War, which are trying to put more pressure on the Congress. Uh, there's groups like the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Oh, of course. Uh, there's groups like Peace Action. So the groups that have worked on these issues are rallying, and they're finding uh, a lot of positive responses. Uh, and I think if we could flood Congress with not just hundreds, but thousands and tens of thousands of messages from constituents yes, to the point where they thought, well, you know, If I support this war, I may be putting my job at risk. I think that's when we'll see some results.
0: That does work. It really does. Self-protection, CYA, as they say. So I always try to end on a positive, optimistic note. Might this incredible crisis be an opportunity for democracy to reassert itself? Your thoughts on that, please.
1: Well, not only might it, but it, it must. Um, and I think it's it's well past time. And I, I think this kind of focusing mechanism, of just how disastrous this would be, may well bring people out who have been standing back uh, from really expressing themselves politically. So, so I have, I, I do have hopes for that.
0: And again, people, if people are listening who really want to do something here, you know, there's sometimes it's sort of. Uh, uh feel may feel good to stand out in a corner and hold candles and hold signs. And I you know, it's not a bad thing and I think, you know, it can it can help a little bit, but you know, just doing that and then going home, that ain't enough. So so, what can people do? Do you think if you were you know to uh, to wave a magic wand, what can people? Well, not real, realistically. What can people do to to end uh, this insanity? You know, I mean, th- it's the money. You know, if they can somehow, if somehow, cut off the funding for this, I don't know if that's possible. But but your thoughts on this? And to, and we have you know the presidential primaries are going on now too. People can go and see the candidates variously in Iowa, New Hampshire, and and Nevada, and South Carolina. So so what do you suggest people can do? Can you be a cheerleader perhaps?
1: Well, I think everything we can do, we must do. So I think that means people in the streets. I think it means pressing our members of Congress. I think it means carefully quizzing and vetting the presidential candidates. I think it means articles, letters to the editor, web posts, uh, having speakers and teach-ins at universities, at religious organizations. Um, and there have been some. I mean, I think in the short term, this may not, um, you know, be able to move quickly enough. But on the issue of Saudi Arabia, for example, there's a movement in Massachusetts to divest their pension funds from uh, uh-huh. companies that are arming Saudi Arabia. So I think some of those things may develop as well. And I think some of the student groups may start turning to divestment from military companies as an organizing principle, also. So. There's a lot of ways to add it, and sometimes people, you know, you have to sort of look at who your contacts are, who you have influence over, Uh, because, you know, I could write all the articles in the world, but unless there's organizing, um, it's pretty much just a speaking truth to power uh, exercise. It's really up to a much broader collective of people if we're going to make a difference.
0: Well, we can do it. If people are interested in reading more of your stuff and uh, perhaps learning about the uh, uh, Center for International Policy, there must be some website to which you can point them.
1: Yes, it's internationalpolicy.org. And also, if you Google my name, William Hartung, um, our organization comes up, and a lot of the places that I write will, will also come up.
0: Well, thank you so much. Glad your throat's feeling better now. <laughs> and uh, let's hope for some good things in the future uh, we can possibly avoid a war and uh, see what we can do about this man insane. Thank you so much, Bill Hartung, for being with us and keeping democracy alive.
1: Thank you, and I'm sorry for the glitches.
0: All right, thanks. and say